0: Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Chat Perks and this week I'm going to be talking to Billy Heaney who is a wildlife presenter and zoologist. But before we get to him we're going to cover the news. Now this is going to be relatively old news by the time you listen to this but I feel like it's worth mentioning uh, Boris and Newts. Uh, Quite simply what a load of bollocks. So Boris Johnson recently said new counting delays are a massive drag on prosperity of this country basically he's blaming uh, the people who survey newts taking too long to build housing and on the face of it great crested newts can be locally common in britain but over the course of europe are, are rare so a lot of people cite that this law is not really relevant to the uk Because if you look on a a European scale, uh, the newts are rare. But if you look on a local British scale, they can be quite abundant. However, if you look into the issue, um, it's it's complicated. It's not as simple as that. Now, apparently the problem is that developers are often too fixated on free bedroom properties in the £400,000 price bracket, whose releases on the market can be staggered to guarantee a steady stream of buyers. It's this more than anything that slows things down. They don't want to release cheaper properties and they don't want to do them too expensive. They want to do it around that mark where they can sell them. So the newts are really a scapegoat. Something that enough people have heard about newts uh, slowing down property. So it's an easy thing for Boris to blame. Now obviously with Brexit people are like okay then we don't need to listen to these European laws because of the newts. And yes great crested newts are legally protected. But the way we implement that legislation regularly changes so last year for instance the government announced a great fanfare that it was streamlining the whole process of issuing new licenses so that developers can get to work more quickly so boris johnson didn't refer to that when he did this speech even though he was a part of all of that so it's kind of convenient for him to negate what he's already been a part of we should celebrate the fact that the UK has large numbers of great crested newts, and they are incredible creatures, and and they are certainly worthy of our protection. So I think it's a shame that they're sort of being spearheaded as the villains of the economy, when arguably, without getting too political, there's a lot of other things that are causing the economy to not do uh, so well. Anyway, less uh, newts and Boris Johnson, let's talk more about Another man with B at the beginning of his name, Billy Heaney. Now, as I mentioned, Billy is a zoologist and a broadcaster, and I'm going to talk a little bit about his career in natural history and particularly his affinity for marine mammals. So, Billy, thanks for joining me, buddy. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm, I've got this kind of blank. Back. I mean, you won't be you won't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but it's, I've got a blank kind of wall behind me because I'm meant to be decorating, and I've, again, I've snuck off for another podcast. So. I'm quite liking the excuse of skiving off work for an hour to, to chat to people.
1: Top way of doing it. That's the best way to get out of the chores.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm working on more excuses as, as, as time goes on. I think we should start at the beginning with you. So you started off in Falmouth, but you were on an Exeter course. Because so, Exeter University is at Falmouth or some kind of weird?
1: Uh... Yeah, so we have, um, it always gets nice and confusing. So as much as... Exeter main campus is in Devon, for the Streatham campus, I, where I went to study my zoology degree back in 2012, uh, was in Falmouth. Um, and we share a campus with Falmouth University. So there's a really cool hub of all, with two units all together in a beautiful location. Uh, but yeah, there's that ongoing sort of joke of, you know you go to Falmouth or you go to Exeter. There's always that sort of bit of banter going on between the two. So that was good fun. But yeah, so I went, I moved to Cornwall in 2012, where I did my first degree, became a massive beach bum. And then straight <laughs> That's after, everyone in Falmouth was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> flip-flops or nothing. And then, um, and then jumped straight into a postgraduate master's by research, which I did part-time for two and a bit years and then sort of lived in Cornwall for a few years after that as well so yeah that's how it all kind of came about in a nutshell with my moving to Cornwall yeah. Because I guess what particularly if people are at university now
0: what they're going to be interested in is what happened next because it's that kind of existential crisis of you finish university and then it's like Jesus Christ do I do I end up working at Tesco or do I go on to try and do
1: something else you know it it can be quite tricky. Well for me it's of yeah because I finished, yeah, through third year, I was like, had that thought of like, crikey, what do I do next? And I'd started my dissertation for my third year, and I was doing this cool project on Grey Seals in Cornwall, and while I was thinking about what else we could do with this project, I came up with another concept for it, and my supervisor at the time said, oh, that's more of a master's research project than a dissertation, I was like, well, let's do it then, Um, and that's how that, that, and then that kind of led into the next two and a bit years of my life, nearly two and a half, because I did it part-time. Um, so yeah, at least I had that sort of, okay, I'm going to stay down here for a bit um, and made the most of being down there. So yeah, that's kind of, and that was really cool. Spent most of my time at a computer looking at pictures of seals, unfortunately, but got to see them fairly regularly and be in the water as much as I could. Got to do some really cool things around the north coast of Cornwall and down in the Isles of Scilly as well, researching grey seals. That was epic.
0: It's an awesome place to live, isn't it? I, I was thinking the other day, the amount of successful biologists, zoologists, TV presenters and cameramen who have been in Club Eye. Like it's got, <laughs> it's like, if, and if for people that don't know, Club Eye is like a kind of shitty club in Falmouth that's basically a pub function room. It's got a carpet and it's just an experience If you know, visit Falmouth should just have Club Eye as, as its main uh, attraction. But uh, the amount of, I think Steve Backshaw's been in there. Didn't some people take him? Is that, is that or was that a rumour? Yeah, you know
1: yeah, no, you can't. It's one of the places where you walk in and leave your shoes at the door, isn't it? It's... Um... <laughs> But no, yeah, I think he did unfortunately get dragged in there. I bumped into him that night in Beowulf before. Okay, Beowulf's uh, nice. Yeah, and because I n- what was really sort of dumb on my behalf, what was accidental, was that he came in to do the lecture, and this would have been in my second year, so crikey, this is a long time ago. And I was wearing a black T-shirt with a white silhouetted walker on it. And then he walked down and he was wearing a black T-shirt with a white silhouetted shark on it. Yeah. So I was, and I was in like the fifth row and then all my mates like digging me on the arm, like going like, well done Muppet. You look like a massive fan girl. <laughs> anyway, but we had a chat and then when I bumped into him in the pub later, he remembered, he said hello. But I was like, have a good one because you ain't going to escape this one easily tonight. Cause there's just like all these like undergrad students. So I was like, gave him a click on the glass and left it to it. I was like, have a good one. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> I, um,
0: I was in Falmouth in February and we, I did a lecture at, um, at the university some of the marine natural history students and um, myself and Josh Jagon and then we we went out later to we ended you know one thing led to another we ended up in mango tangos about four in the morning or whenever oh, it was. she did and uh, and this student this H P student came up to me and Josh and he was like oh I really enjoyed the lecture I think you guys are great and, and we we tried to say you know Look, this this isn't the time to network. Like, I appreciate you coming up, but yeah, this isn't the time. The <laughs> I, I can I've got one eye shut. I'm dribbling in the corner. Like, let's you know, ch- chat to me tomorrow. But yeah,
1: it's it's a great. I, I love Falmouth. Any any excuse to go back down there. It's a it's a very. It sounds like our night in the beer festival last autumn. Do you remember that one? No, <laughs> well, we don't, I don't think you would.
0: <laughs> no, you, yeah, you didn't. Didn't you say I? I kept saying hello to you about four times. I kept bumping yeah, into you. Yeah, I think it,
1: like, you. Think you yeah, you thought you saw me for the first time about four times that night. That was quite entertaining. <laughs> in oh, the that's... end, it just became sport for me. I was just like, let's see if he, let's see if he does it again. <laughs> I should just say, I'm not an alcoholic.
0: I know that's the first thing an alcoholic would say, but I, I very rarely drink now. I'll just go large oh, when I do. <laughs>
1: that was fun. That was a good night. Oh, great stuff. I, where, where are you based now, Because you're not in Falmouth now, are you? No, so I'm currently in Gloucestershire in a beautiful little place called Waterloo Bottom. Oof, cheeky it is a bit cheeky and it is in the back end of nowhere um so basically me and my girlfriend we moved out of our flat in february and thought right we're gonna time to get off the beach and try and get a proper job basically uh and make a career so we thought okay well we'll move up to bristol because i don't want to go back to the london ends because i don't want to do that so yeah we thought initially we thought okay for february march we'll be at her mum and dad's whilst we find a new place and you know, just have a bit of a stepping stone. Obviously that didn't go to plan with certain words and certain phrases that we won't dwell on um, and ended up spending lockdown here. But we're in a very pretty place. I mean, it's very remote, but the wildlife has just been fantastic and it kept me motivated and kept me, kept me out of trouble and mischief, to be honest. So yeah, no, I mean, deepest as death, it's lost you at the minute.
0: Oh, brilliant. Now you're, you're a general naturalist but I suppose cetaceans and marine mammals are your bread
1: and butter. That's kind of what you really are into. Yeah, definitely my main bag. Uh, yeah, sort of professionally with research that absolutely, marine vertebrates with more focus of, of marine mammals for sure. They're my first love. I've been obsessed with whales and dolphins and seals and all sorts since I was a toddler. And then yeah, that passion for them is what basically got me into the whole natural world in general. Uh, so most of my adventures and journeys Usually evolve, revolve, usually revolve around trying to find something with the dolphins. To be honest, what what is it about them? What what was it that kind of enthuses you? Well, they just mesmerise me. I find them very captivating, and it's just their intelligence as well. I find really fascinating. It's just how clever these, particularly cetaceans and sort of the dolphin family, how intelligent they are. And it's just something about that, you know. You can't see them all the time. So they're a bit more of a tease because I've had some amazing encounters, don't get me wrong, but I've spent hours, days on the water and seen nothing. <laughs> so it's just like i think with cetaceans and marine mammals, obviously there's some areas where you know like with a with a seal haul out for instance, you know you're pretty much guaranteed. Like if you got the right time of year and the right titles uh, the reward is massive. But you gotta put your arm um, and you put your sort of legwork in to get there, sort of thing. So yes yeah, so really sort of captivated me and um, yeah I've spent a lot any money that I earned working in a pub or you know working in a car park or whatever I usually spent on right where am I where am I going to go to try and track down a new new beastie kind of thing and that's kind of what I've been doing obviously not this year but the last few years that's what I've been quite lucky to do because
0: you're you you mentioned the intelligence of them because they're up there with apes aren't they or or near nearly they're very smart and people you know just think of them as as a stupid fish looking thing but they're
1: they're incredibly smart animals aren't they massively it's particularly like sort of i think particularly orca and bottlenose dolphins there's something about those two to me that really stands out um so i like to probably the wrong way of saying it but i quite like to think that the bottlenose dolphins are like the velociraptor of the dolphin world they're like (laughs) stupidly clever and like um so for, here's a story of this so, so for instance it's like I've been I used to work on a wildlife tour boat in Falmouth so I spent a lot of time um watching common dolphin Rizzo's dolphin and bottlenose dolphin down there um and Rizzo's dolphin are just a whole other we'll come back to them because they're just phenomenal but common dolphins were great but I often found that when they they were swimming around they're like they're playing and everything but they weren't that it was weird because I found they were obviously they're super intelligent, but it was very different when the bottlenose were around the boat because there was definite they were more checking you out more often than not than you were checking them out. They're always looking at you, and it was I often found like when you looked at them, you could tell someone was home. It's a re- it was just a bit of a weird thing because they pop an yeah. eye on you if you were that close on the bow of a boat, and it kind of looks through you. And I had this one evening where we've been out on a trip. And um, it was just after, I remember this, it was like second second year of uni. We just finished it. I finished my exams and I managed to go out on an evening trip. And we hadn't really seen much. And we're coming back into Falmouth past St. Anthony's Lighthouse. Uh, and we're coming back in. And all of a sudden, without a splash, without a ripple, two bottomless dolphins, it was like something out of Top Gun, came out of nowhere onto the bow of the boat, either side. They were, ahead, they were ahead of us and just came in on us like two jet fighters, pipes. And we had no idea they were there until they were on us. And it was just like the way they can creep up on you. And this is a nearly four metre long animal. I was going to say they're
0: big, aren't they? People don't realise how big. Bo- I saw the ones at Channery Point. And I was like, fucking hell, that's a big
1: animal. You know? They're a big, big mammal. Um, yeah, so the ones in Channery Point and that, that North Sea population are the biggest bottlenose in the world. And the ones we get in southwest of Cornwall, you know, they're not that much smaller, to be honest. So yeah, they're anywhere from like fully grown three and a half to four meters. Like, it's a big animal. Um, and then they came on the bow of the boat, sort of eyeballing it, And then one of, and then they went under. And all of a sudden, and I've got Pendennis Castle to my left, St Anthony's to the right. Sounds like the song. Um, <laughs> And then uh, this bottomos, it just completely breached. And I'm at the front of the boat, trying to get my camera, you know. And I can, it happened all in slow mo. And you're like, oh god, I'm going to miss it. And then. Um, this nose jumped straight up and it kind of went completely horizontal and like and I just remember eyeballing it and it was probably 20 yards in front of the boat and it, it seemed to hover it was one of those experiences where everything went in slow motion and it hovered and as it went back down I managed to get a shot of it completely vertical diving back into the water um, and then another time we were we had a group of bottlenose and the same there's about 30 33 in the community that go around Cornwall in the southwest and there's a few nicks in the fins where you can ID them. And it would have been the same group where off May and Porth, and they were like playing with a barrel of jellyfish and just throwing this jellyfish out of the water, just <laughs> batting it with their heads and, then, and their rostrums. And I had my GoPro on a two-meter metal pole, and I was leaning over the side of the boat, and the pole, the pole wasn't touching the boat, and I had my arms out, and all of a sudden I had this vibration go all the way up through my arm and into my back. And I looked down. I was like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not touching the boat. So there's no, there's no vibration coming from the boat. And what I'm pretty sure happened is the bottlenose echolocated, and it hit the camera, went up the pole. Oh wow! I'm pretty sure that's what happened because it wasn't nothing else could have made it vibrate. But because I could hear them clicking from underneath the water, so that was pretty phenomenal.
0: Because you can feel it. Because obviously you've been in the water with with a few different cetaceans, but when they do do that, particularly if they're close, you can feel it in your ribcage can't you i
1: mean especially whales i guess but i suppose yeah, dolphins as well yeah there's those stories of divers that i've had a, particularly a sperm whale which is obviously the largest echolocating thing in the world yeah with them clicking it like just it straight through here it makes your whole body sort of vibrate yeah yeah and when we were um i had a great experience of i was swimming with wild dusky dolphins in new zealand um and yeah it's hearing them underwater and they're clicking it was quite a choppy day so it was a lot a lot of extra sound of the, the, the waves breaking and stuff. But yeah, that was a magical experience. And with that, it's sort of the, the tour company that I went out with, they've done their research with the dolphins. So they only allow people to go out when, so the Duskies feed at night and they rest in the early mornings and the late evenings. So they never go out to see them during those important times of their day so that they don't, you know, get stressed out and stuff like that. Um, so that was, yeah, that was really magical. And um, yeah, I then found out that, you know, the Dusky Dolphins' favourite song is Africa by Toto because you meant good to choice, make sound to the choice. snorkel and uh, you need a beat that you can do through a snorkel so that do 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 through a snorkel mate that is that is cutting to dusty dolphin.
0: I'll remember that if I'm in New Zealand and I want to see yeah. dusty dolphins I'll bang out some 80s power ballads yeah they love a power ballad they do <laughs> uh, so you mentioned you work for a wildlife cruise company I mean that must have been an awesome experience
1: it was great. So I worked for AK Wildlife Cruises, so voluntary and a little bit of, you know, like paid work as well. But most of it was just voluntary as an undergrad, and I did spend a few summers going out most days. I've lost count of how many trips I've done, so I spent, and that was great, because I was like a dream come true, just go out the weekends or even sometimes after a lecture, if the dolphins were coming through, which didn't happen often, but um, he was like, had a report that the boxnows were there. A few of us would just leg it out to get some pictures, kind of thing. But well, when we were running trips, um, we'll take anywhere. He was a li- maximum we could take was twelve people. Okay. Um, so, you know, not not nothing too big group size. It was a really nice boat, and yeah, I had some absolutely magical experiences over oh, crikey, nearly eight
0: years, really. What was the success rate like? Like, would would you ever have days and you'd see bugger
1: all, or did you normally see something? Oh yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember the success. It was weird because in some periods we'd be, you'd see dolphins every day and in other periods i went out and like you'd be lucky if you saw a gannet, like one gallon it just kind of i think sometimes it depends on the conditions with the weather uh, and chop obviously visibility because things could have been there but if there's a bit of a chop or you know the visibility is not great then things can sneak past you a bit more and obviously fit and if there's been like a burst of fish like if there's bunch of shoals in the bay then obviously more things are going to be coming in so lots of different factors I remember one particular day we were up for like four hours and sort of like nothing. Even like the goals were like stuff this, I'm going over, <laughs> and like it was just like a really long day. And you sort of trying to keep the guests engaged, and like oh, you know, sometimes around here we can get hard or sometimes the common, you know, you sort of trying to pull out all the strings, like come on. <laughs> um, but then other days it's like it's just been like an Blue planet out there. Um, with like minky whales coming up on bait fish with um mang shearwaters coming in gannets diving in common dolphins and uh, last summer and the summer before saw quite a few bluefin tuna coming out as well which was ah, okay it was epic so one i think it was it was sometime last august we were we had we spotted a workup on the horizon gannets going out and that's always so exciting to see gannets diving in from a long way off because you know more often than not there's got to be something underneath the, the bait fish pushing them up whether it's Porpoises, bluefin tuna, dolphins. Um, sometimes it can just be the birds and there's nothing obvious, but it could be just larger predatory fish that aren't going to break the surface. Yeah, usually if you get a big workup, you're like thinking, you're at least thinking, there's common dolphins out there. So we got out there and I was on the bow of the boat taking pictures of the dolphins and the uh, and the gannets going mental. And all of a sudden, maybe 10, 15 yards off to, the, to my left hand side, way too close and way too quick with the lens that I had on my camera, this bluefin tuna just went. Oof. Bang, and just right in front of me. And I was just like, ah! um, and yeah, just absolutely phenomenal. But one, one of the best things I ever saw was actually on my birthday a long time ago. I think it was my, oh my God, my 20th, a long time ago now. Oh dear, make makes me feel old. Um, is a minky, we had a minky well off the, off the Rosen Peninsula. We weren't that far off the coast, to be honest. And it surfaced, it sort of broke the surface a few times, load, and then it went down. And, and there's about five or six of us on the bow of this boat, watching, looking around, thinking, where is he going to pop up? All of a sudden, this white silhouette went underneath the boat. And basically, a minke whale is white on, on its belly. And it basically looked like a beluga had swum underneath us. But what it was, was the minke whale, upside down, swimming underneath the bow of the boat. And then it turned and surfaced like, right next to the boat, and it went off again. And we're awesome. all just like oh my god you could just see the whole thing happening and then the way, uh, just lots of beers were consumed that night
0: yeah i bet we've got um tom horton coming on the podcast oh, nice. soon actually because he's mr tuna isn't he uh, he's is tuna Tom for sure so yeah i've got kind of look forward to waffling about tuna uh, with, with him so out of, out of all these uh citations and things that you've seen is there a favorite is there one that stands up the rest for you Absolutely. Um, so,
1: I'm a massive orca dog. Um, <laughs> oh, which, that's that's a bit of a, a common answer, surely. Everyone says orca. It is, but um, I'll come back to my other one in a minute. But that was <laughs> because, for me, how it all began, it's going to sound really corny, and I said this to Sue Perkins back in February, was um, I watched Free Willy when I was like two, was a baby, and I was a bit of a loud, funny enough, baby that didn't really, really? shut
0: up or sit still.
1: <laughs> Yeah, me, loud, didn't sit still. And that was the first thing that made me shut up for an hour and a half, I think. So when, when my mum realised, he's like, oh, he likes dolphins and killer whales. We'll put, just put those on the screen and he'll sit still. Um, so, yeah, it was like my life, my childhood dream was to be able to go watch killer whales in the wild, which came true when I was 22, 22, maybe. A couple of mates of mine, uh, Callum and Rich, we booked a week in Iceland. Just went for a road trip, sort of, went chasing waterfalls, even though you're told not to and then um went in search and we did a couple of boat trips and we had and then we saw orca with like frozen fuels around us it was just phenomenal and i was lucky to see a few of them in canada as well you so made I a film there. about that didn't you isn't there a film out yes there? yeah yeah there's, i did a little sort of road trip it's very rough and ready around the edges it was like my first proper film that i made that weren't just little you know holiday montages kind of thing it was like actually that was my first little mini documentary kind of thing it got shortlisted in the film competition which was and yeah, that was just absolutely breathtaking. And we saw a huge bull, massive dorsal fin and the Patriarch. And there was a newborn calf that still, still had like the brownie patches because when obviously orcas have the white, white markings with the saddle patch and the, above the eyes and stuff. But when they're born, their blubbers thinner and the blood vessels run near the surface, which gives them a slightly muddier brownie ready color. Um, so it was tiny, teeny tiny calf that was probably only like a week, a couple of weeks old. That was, Magic, but I think other than that, without going for the usual common one,
0: there's a lot of funny named cetacean. You know, there's like oh, i am trying to be like bride's toothed donkey whale like or something beet, like that. You beet, know, the
1: beaked whales are just a whole different ballgame. And what's yeah. crazy is that we've got species of beaked whale that have been identified, and no one's seen them alive. They've just uh, been washed up on a beach, or it's or a bit of them's been washed up on a beach. It's never. So yeah, the beaked whales. I've never seen one but there's there's not many people that have seen all of them anyway that's like you've got to spend a lot of time out at sea because there's such deep dive animals that don't really spend a lot of time on the surface but I think other than the orca I was very lucky to see blue whales off the coast of Sri Lanka a few years ago which was magic and um, yeah other than that I think maybe the hectares dolphins in New Zealand the other species types that that's probably out there
0: Okay, yeah, I'm trying to remember those ones because you saw a couple of species, didn't you? Are they were they black and white, but they're quite small as well, or is that the other one?
1: Yeah, they're kind of like a a light grey with black stripe with stripes. With black, they've got like a little black marking on okay. their sort of, on their belly, and they've got so they kind of their nickname is the Mickey Mouse dolphin because they have a circular sort of a semicircle of oh. the dorsal fin, which is okay. like Mickey Mouse did. Um, unfortunately, they're they're quite rare now. But well, there's two subspecies: you've got the Maui's dolphin which is around the North Island of New Zealand and there's like less than 50 left. Um, and then the Hector's dolphin, which lives around the South, South Island and there's about 9,000 left. Um, but sort of the big problem that they've got is they're, only, they're really small and they co- they live coastal and they live in sort of um, estuaries as well. All well, like river mountains. You can imagine the Helford River in Cornwall where we spent a lot of time. There's, how I like to describe where I went, Akaroa is like the Helford but with mountains. Uh, so there's like beautiful turquoise water and tiny little dolphins that are like you know they're like this big they're tiny um, and unfortunately they they get caught as bycatch quite a lot with coastal nets um, and that's sort of a real big problem is that they're getting pulled out accidentally at quite scary rates to be honest but that was yeah well it was trading water as they were just swimming around you know, beautiful yeah
0: incredible species so I, I remember seeing you pop up on nature watch which was sort of a homage <laughs> to watch, wasn't it? And that was a group yep. of students put that together. So how did that all start? Because you, you, you were involved from the inception, is that right? Or did you come in
1: a little bit later? I was in the, I was in the first meeting. Um, I remember this, because there was a group of us. So I, was, I remember being in the first meeting when it sort of the brainstorming came about. And then that was at the end of my second year. And in the third year, my time management was pants. And I was, um, unfortunately, didn't, I didn't get involved in the first season just the first series just because I was trying to do my third year and I had a few other things going on and my just didn't yeah I just wasn't very good at time management back then so I didn't get involved but once I started my, my part-time masters um, in the first year I probably took part time a little bit too literally because um, I had a lot to do in the second year. Um, I got involved in the second series and came on board as, yeah, came on as a presenter which was fantastic to work. It was such a great project because you had like Team from Falmouth with, with all the photography skills. I mean, a lot of the extra students had that, and vice versa with the wildlife knowledge. It was kind of a nice sort of crossover between the photographers and filmmakers that were dab hands with kit, but also knew a lot, and the vice and vice versa across. So it was just a really great group of people, and um, yeah, got we'll to talk about some great Cornish wildlife and make some really fun films, which is really good fun
0: it seems to have been a bit of a breeding ground for kind of uh, people's careers as well because you look at you know things like uh, pete cooper and lizzie daly yeah. and a few others who worked on that and then they've actually yeah. gone on to work on actual spring watch or other natural history yeah,
1: programs so russell as well and a few of the others yeah, so, of course. and it yeah no it's just great because we well, i'm still in touch with all of them and it's kind of yeah that was brilliant to sort of get stuff on your cv get yeah, experience and i've actually had um, meetings with different producers and just chats nothing's ever come of it properly but i've had chats with people in the industry and they're watching it so if anyone's on nature watch now keep going because people watch it so you never know what might happen if you're doing it so that's yeah, they, they definitely
0: take notice of stuff like that because it's yeah, yeah potential talent for, for later on. Well, I'm gonna end on this last question, buddy. Anyway, so you've you've used remote cameras a lot for your conservation work and particularly yeah. with grey seals as part of your masters. I think that's right. Yeah. You've used champ yeah. for that.
1: So why are trail cams such an important tool for conservation? Oh, it's such a good question. Well, on the face of it, people are lazy. I mean it's in a nice way, because you can leave a trail camera out and uh, it will do your work for you most of the time. Now, what trail cameras are so good for is that it's a non-invasive method for a style. So you can put a camera on a tree in a really remote place and you don't need to worry about, I mean, you can get super duper fancy ones, don't get me wrong, but if you're just using sort of your normal battery powered trail camera, you can tie it to a tree or a rock in a remote place and you don't need to worry about getting a satellite dish up to get your data, you just gotta go back every couple of weeks or months to check it. So. Um, we use them in a way that they probably haven't really been designed for um, because we use them on a the pinniped haul out beach in North Cornwall um, so rather than them being triggered by the sensor we pro which you can use a time-lapse function where you program the cameras to take a picture at a set interval. so I had the cameras programmed for the University of Exeter to take a picture every five minutes every hour of every day during daylight hours so you can imagine the amount of pictures that I had to draw through uh, and <laughs> unfortunately quite a wide angle so the seals looked like slugs um, more than seals because they're just like little furry blobs but um so what we used them to do was look at their fallout um use across seasons across tidal cycles and we used the data that i got from the counts to link it to human disturbance with we had a football count to look at the number of people on the site and we did that to model different things about um how they respond to different variables and stuff like that but camera traps in general you can especially in the last couple of years they've come on leaps and bounds with the technology um i recently this year i bought two of the browning wrecking edges and a step up from them from cameras that i used four years ago is of this fantastic yes I, I might things. have i think i might have bought that one reese i bought a browning something or other and yeah
0: the quality is you know it's fantastic. You, can, you can pick them up from aldi or lidl i think and they're like yeah, a potato yeah. like if you just want to know there's an animal in your garden fair enough but i mean my head with a toaster yeah yeah it, <laughs> pretty much this shy shite aren't they but the, yeah. but the Browning one um, is—I really, you know—sound like I'm plugging them. I don't, I'm not sponsored by them, but they're really good,
1: really, really good. No, And quite like—and for a cap for a piece of kit, the ones I bought. Obviously, everything adds up. But when you're thinking a camera kit, it's very reasonable. It's 170 pounds. Yeah. When you're thinking of like camera kit, that's cheap. When in the yeah, in the it's not bad at all. It's not bad at all. Obviously, everything adds up, and I had to save up to get them. But it's um. For the price that they are, I'm very, very impressed. I mean, they do another one now that's like three or four hundred that films of 4K, but we'll save that for a later day. Um, but what you can get from these the images in the video, particularly with sort of animals like tigers, for instance, is animals that have unique markings, particularly the stripes of a tiger, let's use that example, is you can use that to ID individuals and build up population surveys if you had like a number of camera traps set up over a you know a national park, for instance, in Burma or somewhere in India. You can get like population density estimates from the number of individuals that you're seeing, and sort of look at territory sizes and the home ranges, who's interacting with who, and all that kind of stuff. And also like presence and you know presence and absence data. So if you're doing a survey in a woodland, seeing what species are moving past, um, and something that I've just been doing with Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust, which has been great, is they're using camera traps to monitor pine that have been reintroduced to the forest. And that's just been that's I've been doing that for the last six weeks. And i I've sort of teamed up with them, and I'm leaving. <coughs> excuse me, I'm leaving one of my cameras there for the summer just to build up a bank of data and sort of high, high quality Im- images that they can use. And it just means I can have a little spy on a pie martin with, with teaming up with the Forest of Dean um, project. Uh, obviously, I've had permission to do that, so that's what's fun. Have you picked any up yet? Yeah, yeah, uh, awesome. yeah, we've had, got some really nice stuff with the pie martins. and. Um, been very lucky that on two occasions over six weeks, for about five seconds, saw a high like run across a footpath or something like that. So I've actually managed to get a glimpse. Uh, too slow with the camera because to actually get a proper picture. Um, but yeah, amazing little critters. And yeah, I've kind of gone from marine mammals to then being locked in the locked in the countryside to going from marine mammals to mustelids And I've kind of got like a little bit obsessed. Um, with like badges and pine mountains and stuff like that so no it's been a good little and the camera traps have enabled me to do that so yeah as a bit of a passion project I've been using my camera traps to monitor the badger family that lives behind the house so that's been fantastic as well.
0: There's such an incredible piece of kit aren't there I mean I I, 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 I used to have a crap one got a slightly better one now and I just put it down my um where, well, where I used to live, so I've just moved house, but down by the river and we're getting
1: jack deer, which i have never seen there yeah. before, badgers. And, and I was like, where's yeah. all this wildlife in the day? You know, it's, it's mental. Yeah. It is crazy. And it's like this little corridor that I have um, behind the house, there's like a field um, where people are grazing some sheep at the minute. And then there's a, a little belt of woodland. And there's like, as the woodland starts, there's a little patch of scrub that borders the, from field. It goes to a little bit of scrub, which is probably only like four metres across. And then it goes into the woodland. And there it's like, we got roe deer using the corridor, muntjac using the corridor, uh, foxes, badgers, squirrels, rabbits. And then one, one occasion, I'm pretty sure I got the arse end of a polecat. But it literally very was nice. it, up. it was very, very quick. The camera was a little bit slow then. Um, and yeah, just the I checked the camera that I've got up there yesterday and I had the, the first time I've caught the baby roe deer kid on camera. It was only a brief, but I could still see the spots of the stripes of so like young sort of market. So that was really nice.
0: They're cool pieces of kit. Well, look Billy, it's been great talking to you as always and I will catch you in Club Eye at some point, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much for having me on mate. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm actually going to Cornwall on Saturday. How are you? Very excited. It's all legal and legit, self-cated house that we managed to book and it's all come off. So yeah, I'll see you there Thursday week.
0: (laughs) Oh Jesus Christ. (laughs) 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 I'm far too old to be in Club Eye now. I say that, I mean, I probably will at some point, but Jesus Christ. (laughs)
1: Look, take care, mate. Cheers, mate, Andrew. See you soon.
0: That was Billy Heaney telling us a little bit about his career and some of the amazing marine mammal encounters that he has had. Now, this brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week, and I'm going to cover Bass Rock. Now, it's an island in the outer part of the Firth of Forth in the east of Scotland. And the island, undoubtedly, is one of the best places in the world to see northern gannets. It's got 150,000 northern gannets uh, breeding there. It's the world's largest colony for the species. Now, as well as gannets, it also has guillemots, razorbill, shag, puffin, eider, and numerous gulls. not to mention seals and marine mammals that you can see on the way to the island. Now, if you're into plants, it also has bass mallow, which is otherwise only found on a few other islands in the area. So there's so botanical things to check out as well. Now in North Buick is the Scottish Seabird Centre, which is an independent charity and has exclusive rights to boat trips over to the island. So it's the only way that you can get there. I actually think I've been there. I say think because I was around eight or nine. And I remember going to Edinburgh and I went on a day trip somewhere and I sniffed some gannet shit. Uh, at a centre and i can only assume it must have been the scottish seabird centre i don't know where i'd be sniffing gannet poo elsewhere but i do vaguely remember going somewhere and doing that it's one of those places i've never been to bass rock but i'd love to go and i'm told it is a phenomenal place to get close to northern gannets and see them in a new and exciting way i hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. What I would say is if you're enjoying it, do check out the highlights on the Wildlife Exposed YouTube channel. You can see all the highlights and the video chats between me and the guests on there. We also have a Twitter account now, which is at titbearded, where everything is kind of posted on there. And as always, if you've got any questions, if you've got any guests you want to get on the podcast, then send them in and we'll answer them and we'll try and do them at the end of them. I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been the Bearded Tips podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks. And I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.